On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about education. Specifically, should parents be able to have a say in what is in their child's curriculum? And if so, how much say should they have? We'll talk about that. We're also going to be joined by Don Robertson. He's here every Monday evening. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about the Canadians, the Leafs, the Sabres, and how much did they pay the commissioner of the National Football League? Woo! Wait till you hear this one. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know if you know what's going on in Virginia right now, but there's an election that's happening. It's for the governor's office. And it should be a runaway race for the Democrats. Virginia has lately, anyway, since about 2007, 2008, been strongly Democratic. Joe Biden won the presidential race down there by 10 points. It's voted Democratic in every single presidential race since 2008. Yet this time, polls say that things are too close to call. And that recently, in the last number of weeks, things have pivoted and are now the momentum now is on the Republican side. And why is this? Well, not necessarily what you'd expect. It's all about education, or at least it seems to be anyway. And it goes because of this. Uh, The Hill, the, the online newspaper about politics in the States, pointed out that incumbent Democrat Terry McAuliffe was way ahead until a debate at the end of September about education. And here's what he said. He says, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. At that moment, the bottom fell out of his numbers. Parents down there anyway, clearly feel they should have some say in the content of the education of their children. They clearly feel they shouldn't be made helpless bystanders who have no way to affect what their kids are learning. Now, that is the United States. What about up here? Monica Ferenzi is an education education consultant. She is the person who runs Horizon Educational Consulting. She is one of the best in this country. She joins us now. Monica, thank you for the time today. Thank you for inviting me, Todd. So, I mean, it's a very broad question, but it's also very uh, relevant to anybody who's got kids. Should parents have some say in what's in their children's curriculum? Well, the Ministry of Education in Ontario does run consultations on curriculum, more so in recent years than ever so in the past. And so those that parents can offer input into what should be taught in schools. We also have associations related to each subject area, like uh, English teachers associations, math teachers associations, who do submissions on what they believe should be in there. But we have seen a significant shift in the curriculum recently, especially during COVID, as to what is relevant and irrelevant to today's kids. And is that directed by boards or teachers, or is that parents having more of a say or less of a say? I think it's parents having more of a say. We do have school councils in uh, Ontario where parents can participate in different aspects of the running and organization of a school in conjunction with the school principal. Uh, Curriculum is provincial, but they can certainly and have certainly uh, affected change in terms of removing certain texts from what students are reading and also in recommending certain learning resources be purchased at the school by the principal administration. So we do see a certain level of engagement and direction to schools and school staff and school boards about what students should be learning, which is part of the curriculum. 
Monica, one of the really challenging things about bringing parents into any kind of discussion about curriculum or not, uh, either way, we have a province, and we're just going to leave it to Ontario right now because it's the provincial ministry, that has very different sensibilities, perhaps, in different parts. I mean, downtown Toronto may have a very different sensibility about things than rural Ontario up north or somewhere else, and yet, theoretically, they are supposed to learn the same thing. Yes, so... Equity of education is a very important concept and a notion that that's what taxpayers are paying for, whether you live in one part of the province or another. Uh, you should see quality of education and equitable education to all students. So because education is a public service, there is a quality assurance aspect of it, and that's what we're seeing parents engage in more and more. And we saw that throughout covid we saw, saw this shift from basic mathematics going back to learning computation and timetable skills and all those drills that were left behind. And we also saw it in the high school with the financial literacy piece because employers and the workplace were demanding students who can graduate and have a notion of financial literacy and also related to the debt of Canadians and family household mm -hmm. income that is part of the reality now. Absolutely. And, and I think that most people, I could be wrong on this, but I think that most people, when they look at the hard sciences, math or financial or whatever else would say, yes, I want that just to be taught right. I don't care how it's taught, just teach it right. I think where we're talking about the, the challenges and the parents getting involved is when you get into things that are more philosophical, more, um, modern sensibilities, modern, you know, things about sex education, perhaps, or things, things that are a little less clear across the spectrum where not everybody will agree with all the different positions. Yes, that is true. Um, we do still have the debate between one school system funding and the continuing funding mm -hmm. of the Catholic education system, which is against one of the decisions of the World Court of the United Nations uh, stating that that practice is discriminatory to just fund Catholic schools in Ontario. Five provinces have shifted to linguistic-based education systems only, so we'll have to wait and see what happens in Ontario on that question. So that's a big philosophical one. And then the other is uh, assistance with technology, our special needs students, and whether or not all students can have the same access to work and job placements and arts and sports programming. And so that varies across the province. And, and we do let parents have some say at this point already, do we not? I mean, it, it, at one time, and I think it's still in play, if your child goes to a Catholic school they are allowed to be exempted from some religion courses, correct? So there are ways that you can still impact your child's education and, and make it to fit with what you want. Absolutely. Parents can request exemptions from certain courses for their children. Uh, religion is one of them, and non-Catholics can attend Catholic high schools in Ontario. Uh, that's part of the public education funding access piece. And also that... Uh, students can access different programs. We're trying to look at innovative exchanges between students in rural and urban areas, much like international students coming to Canada to uh, study in the Ontario schools. We'd love to have rural students 
spend a semester in Toronto, for example, or a Toronto student interested in agriculture go out to one of the rural areas of the province for a semester in high school. So these are the types of opportunities that can certainly be um, put in place, and parents are the drivers of that. French immersion is another great example. Over 40 years of French immersion in Ontario was because of parent advocacy and the work of Canadian Parents for French, and that's why we have French immersion. So we have a lot of parental influence opportunities not every parent is aware of them. There's still some work to be done there. And um, further opportunities for province-wide consultation on curriculum is definitely still needed because we have some aspects of um, curriculum that is not relevant. Um, one of my personal um, issues is that students don't read enough Canadian literature and, you know, they're still reading To Kill a Mockingbird in their English classes, which is an American literature classic. And um, those aspects have not changed in close to 40 years. I mean, I read that in high school. And so those are the pieces that really need change. And we will see more and more of that. And especially curriculum that is inclusive of our gender diverse students. That needs to have a specific focus on it, and many irrelevant pieces need to go. Students, you know, don't need algebra for day-to-day living, and some other aspects of mathematics that is very abstract, which is part of core math curriculum right now, but really doesn't have any relevance in day-to-day finances or um, just living skills with money handling Maybe this is a very basic question, but how much do the individual boards have control over what goes into their curriculum as opposed to simply what's handed down from the ministry? In other words, if parents groups went to their local school board and and a whole bunch of them stood up and said, we're concerned about this, do they have the power to impact or influence any kind of change or, or do the boards just simply have to follow whatever the ministry tells them to do? Well, boards have to implement the curriculum. That's part of policy. But within that curriculum, which is quite broad, what specifically is used to teach those notions can certainly vary. So parents can recommend certain learning resources, um, apps, websites, access to technology, having um, specialists come into the classroom to enhance the learning and business or communications or healthcare. Those are all curriculum enhancing opportunities that parents can definitely push for in the schools, as well as text and, and learning specific aspects of day-to-day classroom life that they can definitely have input on. You're not a politician, but let me ask you the question going back to where we started with this, because this is about this discussion got started in a political race, but I think there's application for us. Was the mistake here not so much about what's being taught, but telling parents that parents shouldn't be having a say in what's being taught in the schools? Is is that simply waving a red flag in front of parents because they want to believe at least that they're having some sort of a to impact these things? Yeah, it's difficult for me to answer that question because I think it was probably shutting parents out and that really hits a nerve with parents anywhere That's what I mean. in the US yeah. or Canada. 
if you if parents feel excluded from any process, it will bring a red flag and 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 bring more scrutiny to the issue, which is what happened here. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, essentially, when you deal with parents or when anyone in education deals with parents, you don't often get someone goes, ah, do whatever you want. It's just my kid. I mean, they are very, very committed to this. Yes, and that has certainly changed in the last generation. Our new parents are very uh, competent, demanding. They want accountability and transparency. We see that a lot with communication issues with school boards where parents are saying, I have no idea what my child's doing all day in class. And I check the Google Classroom and I can't even understand the assignments that are given. I Hmm. can't see what my child has produced. So there is some level of frustration with that. But that's a communication issue. And so it's an example of parent engagement and wanting them to know what their uh, their children are doing in school. Uh, but that's that's a piece of communication that teachers and school board personnel need to enhance in terms of public service and communicating that back to parents. Yeah, I, I we got to run. I would suggest that probably the worst thing you could tell a parent today is mind your own business. We got this. That, that's when, when you're telling parents that these days, uh, even if you're doing a fantastic job, you're asking for trouble, I would suggest. Monica Ferenzi, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Thanks for inviting me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson. He is the owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and the Dundas Real McCoys Hockey Club. And he is Dundas' Citizen of the Year in 2014. And uh, what else can we say about him? Um, I don't know. What else can we say about you, Don? Take all the time you need. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll come back. We'll revisit the, his resume later in the show. <laughs> Once well, we figure out some of the up. other things. Uh, Don, listen. Um, I got so many things I want to get to today, but let me, let me start here because I saw this story and I think people are going to fall out of their chair. Take Roger Goodell is the commissioner of the National Football League. Take a guess how much money he has been paid, Don, in the last two years in that position. Well, i sure I saw something that said he paid $30 million in tax. Or was that yep, a solid? That's right. No, that's right. Year. No, no, that's right. Thirty million Roger, in taxes. Roger Goodell, in, in the America? past two years, has made a hundred and twenty-eight million U.S. as commissioner. Wow! I, yeah, got to make Gary Bettman throw up on his shoes. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, most of this comes from the from bonuses, and it comes from the fact that Roger Goodell oversaw a new media deal for the next 10 years that is worth a hunt more than a hundred billion dollars for the NFL. So he gets all these bonuses and everything else. And it's unclear if those bonuses extend over the entire course of like, does he get $60 million a year for the next 10 years? I don't know, but I mean, Don, look, you, you've been involved in sports. You've been involved in running leagues as well as teams and everything else. Is there a commissioner that is possibly worth that much money to a league. Is Roger Goodell worth that much to the NFL? Did you say he got them a $100 billion TV contract? 
Well, what I'm saying is the NFL got a $100 billion TV contract. Could they have reached that without Roger Goodell? That's kind of the question. Like, do you believe that only Roger Goodell could possibly have made this happen? Or is the NFL such a brand right now, such a monstrous, magnificent, enormous money-making machine that I could have run the NFL and got close to $100 billion? Well, I think your argument might be um, in part, well, first of all, it's an obscene amount of money to pay a commissioner to run a league. Let's start with that. But he's had a pretty good hand, in my mind, in really developing that brand to the point where they could command that kind of thing. He's kind of stewarded that thing along as well as any commissioner ever has. So you have to give him some credit for that. I mean, the guys, the owners must think he's worth it or they wouldn't give it to him or they'd have fired him. So I guess the owners make those decisions, Scott. And if they feel that that's the kind of dough he's worth, well, you know what? I mean, I'm sure the spec and HML pay you very handsomely because you're very good at what you do. That's their choice. I, as I say, I look at this and, and I mean, a hundred billion dollar TV deal is a hundred billion dollar TV deal. And if you're the owners, I'm sure you're delighted because I remember hearing somewhere recently that NFL teams, all their salary cap of their players and their front office, basically all your expenses are covered with profit before you put a person in the stands, just on the TV deal alone everything that you're going to spend to run your operation for the year is paid for. So every single fan that puts his butt in the stands and buys a shirt and buys a beer and buys a hat, all of that is money on top. I'm sure every single owner is thrilled with this TV deal. I just wonder if really, if Roger Goodell is the guy who made that happen, or if the NFL, as I said before, is just such a, monstrous, you know, huge thing now that almost anybody with any business acumen could have pulled that off. Well, I think there's lots of guys that certainly could have done that. But if you look at it uh, in the perspective of uh, a commission on the $100 uh, billion dollar deal, it's like 1%. Like He, he may have had a, a deal in there where he gets 1% of any... Um, new television contract. Well, it's way less than 1%. It's way less than 1%, right? A hundred million dollars on a hundred billion. A hundred billion. Okay. All right. All right. So if my math is wrong and I, I, it should be all right. I I spent four years in grade 12 math. It should be better (laughs) than it is. Uh, It might be 0.01%, whatever it is. It's like neck It's tip money. It really is tip money. Isn't that astounding? I'm sure Batman may well have got a bonus for getting back on ESPN and doing what he did. I mean, remember, at one point, the NHL were on the outdoor network. You know, they put themselves in mainstream. I'm sure he gets well paid for the NHL contracts he develops. <laughs> the biggest difference is they're not, um, <laughs> they're not $100 billion deals, right? I mean, no. they're... they're they're minuscule deals compared to that. I mean, that, first of all, you want to talk about his salary. Is that contract to put games, football games on TV not obscene? A hundred billion dollars? 
Well, think about this. I mean, and again, this is pretty basic math. I'm not, I'm not breaking anything down here, but I mean, it's a 10 year deal. So you're talking about just for revenue for the NFL, just for television, no stay, no fans, no nothing, just $10 billion a year. So you're talking 300, basically $300 million. If my math is right again, per team, just on the TV deal. 300 million U.S. That's, well, it's, it's stunning. I talked to a, an executive, um, a beer executive, when uh, Bidoff and, um, oh, the guy that owns, uh, uh, you just don't see FRB, Alan Slate bought the Raptors. And I said to him, is there a chance they can make any money? And he said, in the second year. I said, why? He said, well, they don't get a full cut of the, TV deal in the first year, if you remember, they kind of got screwed around a bit. I said, "Well, how good's the TV deal?" He said, "They don't need any same deal. They don't need they don't need any fans, and they don't need to sell a hot dog or a T-shirt, and it can be profitable." That's how good the NBA deal was when the Raptors come in, and that's 25 years ago. Now the numbers are a lot different, but the you know the the TV deals that the NBA and the NFL get, you're absolutely right. They make money before they open the door. Hence, they could operate last year, right, if there was no fans. The NHL's in a far different state of affairs, although they did it. It's it's obscene. The dollars and cents, no one can make, well, nobody can make any sense of it. And now you see why guys can make $30 million a year being a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, because, no you know kidding. What? They're, they're, not, they're not even getting their share. Right? If you think, I mean, think about that. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? So their best player is getting thirty million a year, and he's probably getting ripped off on the grand scheme of things. Yeah, no, the, I mean, there's uh, what's his name who plays for um, for Kansas City is making fifty million dollars this year, and you're right, that, that sounds like it's an obscene amount of money, and it is, it is. There's no question about that. And based on how much revenue he may actually generate for this team, you're right. That may be he may be getting ripped off. That's amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, they're all getting more than you and I are, but that is a that's that that's a big payday. And quite frankly, does he get 128 every million every year in the in the world I live in? If I get 128 million for one year, I'm good. Like I don't need to make 128 million every year. You know, this is totally not a sports topic, but I've had this discussion with people before. We've talked about stuff like this. Is just imagine for a second, like. Not even 128, $10 million. You win 10 million bucks or you sign a contract that pays you 10 million a year, a Mitch Marner contract, something like that. The first year you buy the beautiful house that you want, like the most imagined, wonderful house, a couple cars, you maybe buy a cottage, go on a few trips, buy everything that you could possibly ever imagine. And now you're covered. And then the next year they say, oh, here's another check for the same amount. It, it, it's, it becomes difficult almost to spend the money, I would think. But that's not a problem I'm ever going to have to worry about. Nonetheless, with so many athletes, you wonder why. You wonder why some people get in trouble. Not all, not all, the minority by far. But you wonder why some do. It's like, well, you've got all this money and almost nothing to spend it on. You're going to find a way, and some make bad choices and find stupid ways that get them in trouble because they can because there's so much money involved. But boy, 128 million for a commissioner is um, it's pretty stunning. It is pretty stunning. Anyway, that is not what Don nor I make. 
if you throw Ben in, we almost get there combined, but really it's, uh, it takes three of us to, to reach those numbers. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. The Buffalo Sabres, as you will recall, as everybody will recall, were atrocious last year. I mean, truly abysmally atrocious, dead last in the NHL. Had 37 points in the entire season. Now it was a shortened season, nonetheless. 37 points, dead last. This year, they've already got 11 points. They've only played eight games. They're near the top of the league. Things are looking great in Buffalo. And yet, the thing that's so stunning about this, besides just the turnaround, is that the Sabres are playing without their superstar player, without Jack Eichel, with him in the lineup. In all the years that he's played for them, They've always been terrible. He's supposed to be your best player. He is a great player. The moment he's not in the lineup, the Sabres start to play really, really well, especially really well in the team game. Do you start to wonder if there's a connection? You uh, you do when you start getting a big enough sample size. Now, this, the uh, Sabres have had hot starts before, and then wet the bed after that. But you, I, you think you're right from a team standpoint, and you have to start wondering because he was their captain, which always kind of makes you wonder why you always make your best player the team captain. He may not be the best. He may not be the team captain, although he's wearing the C, and that sometimes doesn't matter anyways because the real leaders in the room lead anyway no matter who's got the C on. But it's starting to look like it's no coincidence, and it's something else, Scott. When you do what I do, and you start seeing something like that, and Eichel wants a trade, I'm not sure that this isn't hampering his value on the trade market when they are that much better a team without him in the lineup. What does that tell to the suitors of Jack Eichel right now going, hmm, maybe there's more to this than just talent. I don't. I, don't I was going to ask Buffalo's uh, position. No, I was going to ask that. If you're if if you are another team that's been looking at this, does it cause you to to pause for a second and say, "Wait a second. I mean, the teams that we're hearing are very much in the mix for Jack Eichel, whether it's true or not, are Calgary and Vegas. Now there may be others that are in there as well, but Vegas is not having a great start to the year. They could use him, but Calgary. They're one of the top teams in the league. Do you really want to take the risk? And maybe, maybe you say, you know, pure talent is pure talent and he can only help us. But do you really want to take the risk that maybe there's something else here that the guys in the room just don't play well with him and you upset the apple cart? I don't know. I don't know. Is it, I okay, mean, so it, 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 it comes down to whether you can overlook talent and, and if you can really look at the other stuff. So there's a couple things to look at when you're looking at stuff like this, right? Like we've had some guys uh, when we were the real McCoys, and that's real McCoys and uh, championship team that I've ever, ever been lucky enough to run. One of the things that you can do is you can bring in a bit of a bad apple and know you're bringing in a, a guy that doesn't have a great reputation as a team guy. And in 2014 and 2013, our teams were strong enough that nobody was going to take over our dressing room. Everybody was going to toe the line and, you know, the guy was going to contribute. Maybe Eichel didn't like that spotlight. I mean, he might get it somewhere else when he goes. But if he goes into a 
a Vegas dressing room, for example, and they have a real solid team. And all he has to do is play hockey. And if he's a bit of a pain in the butt, they'll straighten that out. They'll knock that out of him. And if you can't knock it out of him, you trade him. So I think there's still lots of upside. I would think Vegas would be a better spot for him. Um, there wouldn't be quite as big a spotlight on him because it's Vegas and there's lots to do. If he goes to Calgary, he's going to be expected to be an absolute superstar, which he would be in Vegas. But I don't think the outside pressure in Vegas can be nearly as high as playing for a Canadian team. Vegas need a superstar, though. I mean, they're in the business of marketing, right? They 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 got lots to uh, they got lots of sizzle to put on that stake. And an American superstar, no less, if he were to go there. Yeah, and, and, and you know, in Vegas and stuff like that, I don't think anybody cares if you're American or uh, Russian or. But I, I do agree. If you're if you're a superstar, you're a superstar. In the states, in Vegas, if you're a superstar and you're American, that that can be very helpful. You know, they'll talk about where he's from, where he played, you know, junior hockey and all that stuff. But it would be it would be a bigger sell in Vegas than it would be in. Um, than it certainly would be in uh, Calgary. I, the Leafs I just seem to find be pretty it... satisfied with a an American superstar in Matthews, though, right? True, true. I, I, although you know, Toronto is a market that is just desperate for a superstar. They would have taken a superstar from anywhere, um, and maybe the same in Vegas. I, I, I just look at this Sabres team though, and it it stuns me because it like he is clearly the most talented player on that team. But it just the, the appearance is when the guys when he is not in the dressing room, this team has decided to be a team, and I, and I maybe it's a fluke, maybe it's entirely a fluke. Maybe you put the credit on the new coach, maybe you say the goalies played well, maybe there's a lot of other things. But boy, oh boy, it's um it really does stand out that they have been bad, like bad bad, for the duration of his time there. They they were bad when they got him. And they've never really improved. And the minute he well, steps uh, away is the minute they turn around. There's got to be something to be said for it. And if he if you particularly well like them to dressing room, a lot of players will step up just to prove the point that this wasn't just a Jack Eichel team. We might be better without Jack Eichel. I mean, you don't know if he wasn't well liked, and I don't know if he was or not. But if he wasn't well liked, there's guys trying to prove a point of some things. And uh, and uh, here's the other thing. When they do trade him, first of all, they can't win the trade because, according to Sam Pollock, who I believe, the team that gets the best player well, wins the trade. And somebody's going to get a real good player in Jack Eichel. But whatever they get back is going to just add a lot of depth to what seems to be a pretty good hockey team or a hockey te- an average hockey team that's off to a great start. But they're going to get nothing but better when they get something back from Michael. And they won't just get draft picks. Yeah, no, I, I uh, th- this looks like it, it's, this looks like it's only good for Buffalo. And, and you would never have expected that. You would, uh, to me, you would never have expected that Jack Eichel not being with the Sabres would have made them better or that Jack Eichel being traded might make them better. But boy, it's um, it looks that way right now. It it looks that way, uh, and again, maybe maybe it's a fluke, and and what would be 
horrendous for the Sabres, as with any team in a situation like this, is if he goes to whatever team he goes to and he suddenly becomes a 120-point guy every single year. But he wasn't doing that there. So, Yeah, but he wasn't doing it there. So, you know, at a certain point, what do you do? What do you do? I don't know. I uh, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe, he did, maybe he wanted out last year and the year before and was frustrated and didn't give a damn. And all the players around him could see he didn't give a damn. And if you don't care, then it rubs off and guys get mad because they know what you're capable of, but you're not doing it and they're working their butts off. So there could be a whole combination of a lot of things. Somebody close to the Sabers. Uh, I know what, I'll reach out and see what kind of reaction it is. Of course, didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I mean, that may well be the case too. Guys were mad know, I, because he, he's not putting out and we know how good he is. Or this could be completely coincidental. And if Jack Eichel was there, they could have been off to an even better start. I mean, they're, they're five, two and one, maybe they'd be seven, oh, and one, who knows? I mean, they could have been even better with him in there for all we know, but it just, it, it is striking that a team that's been so bad for so long suddenly looks, if not good, although they look good right now, if not good, they look competitive, which they have not been for a long time. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm going to ask you about two different teams. We'll start with the Leafs. Do you think that what has happened is just bad luck? When you look at the analytics of the Leafs, and I don't know how much you, how much stock you put in analytics, it looks like they should be way, 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 way better. Do, do you think they are way better than they've shown, or do you think they've got what they deserve so far? Well, they've got what they deserve, but they should be way better. How's that? Um, they've got what they deserve because they're not working hard enough. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much talent you've got. We've seen it all. You've covered so much. And, you know, so many people have watched so many good teams. But if you're a good team and you don't work hard, you're not beating anybody. And I don't think the Toronto Maple Leafs have paid the price um, that needs to be paid to be successful in the National Hockey League. And if they're not doing it during the regular season, I'm very fearful, if in fact they make the playoffs, that it won't carry on. And it's starting to, in my, my mind, tell us why they got beat three straight by Montreal and blew a 3-1 lead. They just, you have to care more and you have to work the other guys. So, and they haven't done that. Do I expect more? Yes. Uh, am I surprised at the results? Not based on the effort. No. I am. I am a bit of an agnostic when it comes to hockey analytics. Uh, you know, baseball stuff. Baseball seems to me to be the sport that lends itself to looking at the numbers. And I mean, it's easy because it's well. It's first of all, it's one on one. It's a pitcher against the batter. But you know, where you line up your fielders and all the rest. It. it that stuff makes a lot of sense to me. The hockey analytics, I there are parts of it that make a lot of sense, but uh, you look at the Leafs analytics and they say they should be great right now. Most chances in the slot and time of possession and this and that. To me, this is this is not just the Leafs. This is a this is an indictment of putting too much stock to me in analytics so far. That it that you can say, you know, it can be helpful, but to me, hockey analytics are not like other sports because the sport is so free flowing and so um, what's the word I'm looking for? So non rigid that if you are guiding your, all your decisions based on analytics or mostly on analytics, boy, I, it, it just doesn't work for me. 
Well, it won't work, Scott, because the an- an- analytics will not tell you. It, it, that tells you that they have the most uh, or lead in the top of the league in scoring chances from scoring positions. What it doesn't tell you is that they don't have other forwards in front of the goaltender, and they haven't got other forwards that are prepared to pay the price that it takes to screen, to tip, to block shots. The other thing analytics don't tell you is that the good guys that you want on your team in a playoff run will will make a take a hit to make a play. Those analytics really don't exist. I mean, if you can't see that in your hockey team, you can have the you know a bunch of beautiful skaters and shooters and everything else. If nobody will pay the price, which you keep talking about, but if you won't take a hit to make a play, if you won't step up and do what it takes. And if you won't pay the price, you can't beat anybody. And the reason analytics are different in baseball than they are in hockey and some other sports is because it is a one-on-one thing. Like you can't, what are you going to do? What price can you pay other than maybe lean into a pitch in baseball? But there, 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 there are very few other sports where if you know you're going to get hammered, but you can spring a guy loose on the breakaway, that you take that hit. I would suggest to you there's there's a lot more guys in the Toronto Maple Leafs that won't take that hit to make that play than there are guys that will. And that mindset has to change. And now with Morgan Riley, they've got $60 million tied up in five players, or almost. I mean, it's, it's obscene. Maybe it's $50 million. But it's, they got a lot of eggs in one basket. Holy cow. But again, look, and I'm not, I'm not on the, I'm not on the stamp on Kyle Dubas, the general manager's head, because they're not doing so well. I, I don't think Kyle Dubas is a bad general manager, but he clearly is the poster boy in the league right now for analytics. And so, if this team, which has lost every single playoff series they've played in the last eighteen years and they didn't do it last year, and they're not off to a great start this year, if this team doesn't get going and then doesn't win playoff series, to me, how do you make the case that analytics are the future of hockey when this is the team that has followed analytics as closely as any other team? Uh, you know, William Nylander is, is the darling of the analytics people. He's great at puck possession and this and that and the other. And, you know, William Nylander does some great things because he's a skilled player, but he also does some things that drive you insane because it appears, you keep using the phrase, pay the price. It appears he doesn't want to get hit too much. And, and you know, th- like there are things that I think he, anal- the, the, the people who are not into analytics, it drives them crazy when people talk about analytics as much as they do. And the Leafs, the Leafs are going to either rise or fall on that because that's the path they've gone down. Well, if if here's what I would suggest on November 1st. If the Toronto Maple Leafs don't win around in the playoffs, it'll cost Kyle Dubas his job and Sheldon Keith his job. And, and I think it, it might it, even be higher than that. Well, they can't fire Ed Rogers. He's on his way out anyways. But um, I guess maybe Brendan Shanahan. Um, yeah, I... I don't know. I mean, you, I mean, you're right. Brendan Shanahan is, uh, has put this team together. I mean, he's put this group together, so he has to pay a price too. But I, I just can't see Dubas surviving. Whether it's his fault or not, the ownership group will have to make a statement somehow. 
Well, I keep saying that. I mean, what the yeah. heck? They haven't won. They haven't won since '67, and they keep saying, you know, the ownership group have to make a statement, or nobody's going to buy any tickets. Well, they're the highest paid tickets in the league, and there's a lineup to get them. So, it, well, except cool. on the, every 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 game this year, there have been tickets available, which is which is I think where this is really now. I know COVID and all this kind of stuff, but if all of a sudden there are leaf tickets available. That is going to be what gets Brendan Shanahan in trouble as, as president of this team. Because the one thing that the ownership of the Maple Leafs has always been able to bank on is money flowing in and that you could name your price to sell tickets for whatever. If all of a sudden people are now so sour on the Leafs that there are now tickets available, that's where the problems start to come in for them. Well, fans vote with their feet and their wallet. And you're right. If they can't, if they don't continue to sell out, and I mean, it's still a, it's still a. I mean, we talked about the NFL earlier and how much money they make. The Leafs, Leafs are going to do very well without anybody in the stands. But that's not what this is all about. This is about pride, and owners like to look good. They like to look successful, and they really want to win. I mean, I don't think Larry Tannenbaum wanted to win an NBA championship and got it, but. I think during his tenure, or, and uh, he does have a lot of control there, he'd like to win a Stanley Cup. And if they keep embarrassing themselves, then there'll be major changes. Now, I know it's only November 1st, but there's a trend here. I mean, they I mean they beat a real weak Pittsburgh, or got beat by a real weak Pittsburgh team. You know, teams that they walked in and should have, and, and it was just straight effort that they didn't win. I mean, I don't care how many shots you take in the slot. I mean, you got you got game. You got to pay a price. The other team that uh, is so interesting. Well, there's a lot of teams that are interesting, but the other local team that has a lot of local fans is the Montreal Canadiens. Now, the third lowest, third worst team in the league right now sent down their big prospect Cole Caulfield. Sent him down to the AHL this year. Don, is there is there any? argument against the fact that last year's run to the finals for the Canadians has is being shown to be a bit of a fluke a bit of a lightning in a bottle kind of thing that that team was not nearly that good but they just caught lightning when they needed to well they were they were the lowest placed team to qualify for the playoffs so I mean that speaks true so I don't think there's any other way to fashion other than to a certain extent Lightning in a bottle. And another guy that was out, that played like he can play and isn't playing this year right now is Kerry Price. Yeah. So when you, when you have a guy that is considered one of the premier goal, goalies on the planet and he plays like he's a premier goalie on the planet and now he's not playing for you. Uh, you've heard me say it before, Jacques Demers always used to say, the better Patrick Waugh played, the better I coach. And uh, it's the truth. I mean, when you've got a great goaltender, the defensemen and forwards all look better because he saves their butt. Yeah, I mean, look, Carey Price is a big, big deal, and he's not playing, but Carey Price was not great in the regular season last year. He got, again, got super hot at the right time. I. Uh, I don't know how you argue that what happened with the Canadians fooled some of their fans into thinking they were much, much better than they really are. And that somehow that Cole Caulfield is an example is going to be the next phenom when 
you know, he's got what one assist this year and is probably closer. I think, I, I mean, I was saying it back then. I thought that Cole Caulfield was the most overrated prospect in the history, almost of the hockey. That's overstating it. I know, but there was so much stuff being said about what a super prospect he is. And it was like, no, he's, he's not that good. He's fine. He's an okay player. And I don't think he's as bad as he's shown this year, but he was nowhere near as good as he showed last year in the playoffs. That there was every single thing. It seems went right for the Canadians in those playoffs. They did. And, and it's almost in reverse now, right? Almost everything that can go wrong is going wrong for them. I mean, they lose their top goaltender. Uh, this, this new kid is, Probably had he not have had uh, the playoff run he had last year and he'd have come into camp, he may not have made the team coming out of camp. Right? But yeah. they didn't. They dropped him in because they needed some excitement. He lit things up. He created a fire for him. He was exciting to watch. But again, if he had just come to camp this year, he might have started with Laval Rockets. And that's exactly where he is right now. It is, uh, it's an interesting one. It is an interesting one because uh, Leaf fans are panicking. Canadians fans are panicking. Everyone's panicking except Sabres fans who are, you know, and, and good for them because they are among the best fans in the league. Honestly, they really are and uh, have gone through some it, some rough times. It kind of shows you uh, what the uh, Canada-U.S. border does to their attendance. So I've been looking at their yes, attendance it does. numbers. Like they're eight, nine, ten thousand. I haven't looked in the last two games, but their attendance is way down, and they're winning. So it just goes to show you, like they 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 do rely on Canadian fans. Don Robertson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this, Scott. I'm surprised we didn't talk about Kyle Beach and NASCAR. Well, you know, we didn't talk about NASCAR because I think Scott Thompson probably did, and we didn't talk about Kyle Beach only because. Uh, you know what? It has been talked about so much and we'll be talking about it again. Um, but I thought we would take one day away from that one, but, uh, doesn't, doesn't make the topic or the, the issue any less important. Just thought we would uh, step away for one day. Anyway, we will be back. Uh, Don is here every Monday. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Thanks Scott. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.